Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Surviving Society. (laughs) We are back in the studio for the first time since March 2020 and it's a socially distanced COVID friendly studio. We've just joined the content is queen team so we're now going to be recording as well as doing our online um, recording as well in Peckham and it's it's quite it's an exciting time for us would you say T? Very exciting. I bought my passport to come over to South London. Get me. <laughs> it's been yeah. So I'm southwest and T's obviously east, as you guys all know. So it is a different part of London for us, but it's all good. Yeah, it just feels like a bit of an exciting moment for us, and I think it's just to reiterate how grateful we are to our followers and supporters, and particularly our patrons, because there's no way we would be able to be sat in this studio now without you all. Hundred percent. We are joined today by someone who I've been a fan of for a couple of years now, particularly because she wrote a paper about Foucault. It was literally, I'm going to put it in the episode notes, but it honestly blew my mind. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh my God, this woman, her brain, the way she talks about Foucault (laughs) in such a decolonised slash way that thinks about Foucault's time in North Africa as well was just insane we're not gonna be talking about that stuff today but i'm gonna put that paper in the episode notes because it's very 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 impressive welcome Catherine median to surviving society and you're going to be talking to us today about internal border controls in britain in particular talking about the national health service that is right and thank you so much for having me i actually feel like i've made it because i'm on my favorite podcast <laughs> Guys, why am I talking like this? Is it because I'm in the studio? No, it's <laughs> because I'm a bit, I'm a bit hired. But it's, like... it's, it's, it's a sense of normality, isn't it? It almost. is a sense it's of a, normality. It's a sense of normality, right? And to be honest, like this might be taken away from us again because we might be about to be locked down. Yeah. No, if it makes money, you could be around people. If it oh, doesn't yeah. make money, don't come outside. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, before we get into that, Catherine, when you sent us over the bits to read about the work you've been doing on internal border controls... Just like a lot of the subjects we talk about on this show, it was a difficult read, to be honest, because it's all the stuff that we know that's been happening, but it was very contextualised to understanding Britain and its afterlife of empire. If you could just start off by explaining to us what internal border controls are and then feed into why that is important to understanding migrants' relationship with the NHS or what you say as ordinary resident non-ordinary residents yeah 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 so non-ordinary resident is actually like a legal term it's not my term it's mm-hmm. from official policy so by internal border control i just mean on a basic level being asked to show your documents your passport or a form of identification in order to access welfare services or other services within britain whether that's opening a bank account whether that's applying for a job whether that's accessing hospital care, etc. How did you get onto doing this work? So a couple of years ago, in 2018, I started a postdoc after my PhD at the University of Cambridge. And it wasn't my grant. It was like, you know, when you apply for a job on a larger grant. Mm. 
And that grant was a big welcome trust grant. There were several postdocs and it was looking at changes in reproductive behaviour and fertility from like a sociological perspective. And I am really interested in the gendered politics of reproduction. It's something I've had a long interest in. I got the job. I was really lucky. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of my colleagues were doing really sick and interesting work on more like highly technologised forms of reproduction. So like surrogacy, egg freezing, IVF, all of these things that expand possibilities for reproduction, right? You know, you have non-cisgendered or queer people who are now able to like have a baby via surrogacy. Women can have children by themselves from sperm donation, all this stuff. That's all very interesting. But I was really interested in like the underbelly of all of this. Like who isn't getting to reproduce? Like who's experiencing like the borders, like the violent borders and kind of like racist death drive of like nation states is meaning like they're not able to access reproduction so i started looking at nhs charges for maternity care and then that opened up a whole host of other things that i've started looking at so just to talk about what nhs charges are so basically in 2015 then they were amended in 2017 the uk government introduced charges for migrant NHS healthcare, people without recourse to public funds. So that's people who are undocumented, people whose asylum applications are now classified as like failed applications um, and now required to pay for their NHS care at 150% of the cost to the NHS. And then any debt that's outstanding for more than two months gets passed on to the Home Office, who then will refuse any future visa application, which then obviously can result in deportation. So this is a really like violent, violent regime that we're dealing with. And so a lot of people, when they talk about reproduction, are talking about these highly technologized, exciting, like sexy technologies. But we're often not hearing about these things. And obviously this is taking place within a context where we know that like black women are five times more likely to die during childbirth than white women. And there's a whole host of like reproductive injustice that is taking place. But when we talk about reproductive injustice, we're often thinking about the global south we're thinking about sterilizations in the eugenic kind of in like periods of like eugenicist type mm-hmm. policy started looking at this and i was interested in how these charges were like being implemented um, how debt was being tracked how people were being identified as chargeable and then it took me down this whole like drive of looking at like algorithms and how algorithms were being used and algorithms just being like this very basic like set of rules that are embedded in like a computer that will throw up people who might be chargeable how bailiffs were like going after people and how people were now too scared to access nhs care because they were worried they were going to get deported but What then happened when I was doing all of this research was I went down this like rabbit hole of reading all these policy documents, white papers, policy briefings, whatever. Yes, I was like trying to understand how this policy had like come about and what its history was and what other policies it was building on. And all of the documents I was looking at kept saying, oh, in 1981 or 1982, like charges were first introduced. But that was all I could find. And I was Googling it. I was Googling every word combination you can think of. I could not find any information like what happened in 1982. And that's when I started doing archival research and I started researching the history of these internal borders in Britain and more focusing on like the resistance to them and the amazing ways that groups in the like 70s and 80s were calling for the abolition of border controls and linking internal borders here to regimes of like colonialism and apartheid elsewhere. So I guess the project's got like two sides. It's like kind of historical like resistance and what we might learn from it as well as trying to understand how technology is deepening these very like carceral relations between the health service and the deportation regime within Britain. 
Catherine, that's sick, boy. It's mad. And it, <laughs> like, like, I know, right? Like, and it, it's interesting because I can see where the kind of work of Foucault comes in, like discipline and punish and all those things, it links, right? But if you're talking about that, so I guess it's trying to contextualise this. So in this current moment, the idea of nation is about, so even in its kind of, in the acronym, it's the National Health Service, right? Yeah. So in the, in a common sense way, how it's being put across is, those that are part of the community, in air quotes, people like Boris Johnson would say, people that belong to the nation should have access to that. Yeah. It's a common sense way of approaching it, right? So if someone who's outside that community, wouldn't it be right to charge them? So I think we, we're running into problems in the public discourse here massively, mm-hmm. yeah, because everyone says, mm-hmm. oh, we shouldn't be doing these charges or like, you know, the NHS is like the National Health Service, but it's a universal public good. And like, you keep seeing it. Like, I don't know how, like, I'm sure everyone here, like sitting here has seen these, yeah, in like mm-hmm. houses, you see these little posters like, refugees welcome, save our NHS. I love the NHS, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Cool, that's nice. Mm-hmm. But actually, the NHS wasn't here for many people, right? So the guy who founded the NHS... Orion Bevan. Bevan. Yeah, Orion Bevan. Yeah. He yeah. was a member of the Eugenicist Society in yep. London. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, we talk about these things, like these people were like, oh, everyone is welcome, anyone can you know, like, use our healthcare service. That's actually not true. Like mm-hmm. These kinds of ideas are embedded within like the welfare state, right? What you have is all these people saying, save our NHS, etc. And that kind of misses the actual point, which is no... Like these forms of exclusionary control have long been present in different ways. I've been reading reports from the 60s where like West Indian migrants are complaining that they were asked for their passports when they went to the doctors, right? Mm-hmm. So this isn't necessarily a new thing. And I worry that there is this like newness to this conversation that obscures like the history of racism and empire and presents this like beautiful idea that like everyone was welcome, like we were all entitled to the NHS, like etc. which I think is bullshit. I, 100%, I, I agree. But the, but the kind of romanticism of the idea, it's a, it's a shift, right? 1945 represents a shift to socialism, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's the idea that the working man, now, under that kind of, the idea of the working man, it obscures all the other... Emphasis on the man. Exactly. But it obscures everything else, right? It obscures, obscures race, gender, everything. Mm. That's what we kind of brought up on, isn't it? So when you read any textbook... That's what you talk about. You don't talk about the detail and what it was like or the nuance. Yeah. I think one of the things that Catherine is really encouraging us to think critically about, and it's definitely something that I think Tiso and I have been on a journey with in understanding, is that these conversations, number one, aren't new, and that even parts of the state that we have benefited from have been due to the exploitation and the exclusion of others. And that's even as black people. It's a difficult thing to well, it's not that difficult to come to terms with if you do it if you do it over and over again. But it's something that I think we've had to do a lot on this podcast, thinking about the state, thinking about the NHS. But one of the things that I sort of that really stood out for me in your writing at the moment, Catherine, is thinking about who the NHS has been for. You draw to the works, obviously, of Gaminda Bambra and Rob Shilliam and talking about the whitening of the citizen in Britain and how. That is so present within the discourse. I mean, even if we're talking about the last six months in the renewed reification of the NHS as this signal of patriotism, like this is something that we've seen, like like obviously those of us that are sat in this room now, it's made us feel physically sick, to be honest. Mm. Not because we don't value people that are working in the NHS, just because it's definitely being used as a tool to reinvigorate nationalism Mm. and racism. But yeah, I guess 
my point here is more of a comment about how your work is making me delve deeper into how I think about state support and who is included and excluded. And it's so violent. Yeah. It's so, so violent. Again, the, the historical element is always there. The idea of who's deserving and undeserving. This is a key theme that runs from the 19th century right mm. through up to now. So the issue is in a globalised context where nation states are paraphrased value, nation states making a comeback, right? Mm. Yeah. So in that context, how do we how do we move forward? This is the current reality now, right? I don't see any way out of this kind of iron cage, mm. if you will. Yeah, like a couple of things in response to that. So like, firstly, I think Bordering Britain, the book, does this amazing job of reminding us that like the spoils of empire then get channeled into like the social welfare state. Big and up Nadine. Yeah. 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 And actually, I actually re-listened she's to sick. her like Surviving Society yeah. podcast and it was sick, right? And so like, she does this amazing thing in the book where she's saying, right, the spoils of empire get cordoned off by the kind of reinforcement of the borders. And those spoils of empire kind of get channeled into social welfare. And then at the same time, white British people, or like the kind of false category of like the white working class, or just actually not just the working class, just people, mm. like then kind of come to believe that like, oh, they are entitled to this, this is theirs and theirs alone, right? And that's kind of where a lot of these ideas come from. And I, I think there's a lot to be done to challenge it, but I don't think we can do so in a nationalist frame, mm-hmm. which is also why I'm going back to the 70s and 80s and looking at how they were framing things. So one group that I've been I've been doing research in, in like the archives, is called No Past Laws Here. They were campaigning in the late 70s and kind of into the late 80s against the imposition of these internal borders in different arenas of British life. And they called themselves no past laws here because the past law system was a system of rule in apartheid South Africa that regulated black people and their movements and their ability to access labour and jobs based on an internal like document system where they had to have the right pass, right? And we see iterations of this in many other places, like the ID card and permit regime in occupied Palestine or, you know, like... This is this is a kind of a way of rule, right? So these this group were arguing no past laws here. So at the time when the white British left was obsessed with apartheid and like, doing their anti-apartheid activism, this group was like, actually, like we've got something very similar here, and you're not paying it any attention. And they were kind of connecting what was happening in Britain to what was happening elsewhere. They weren't conflating it because it's not an apartheid situation, right? They weren't conflating it, but they were drawing equivalences and arguing that these were the kind of logics of colonialism and empire that were being internalised in modern Britain. And I think that's a really, really powerful argument because it takes us away from the nation state and asks us to think about how global racial capitalism is functioning, like how it's being embedded within societies, how particular groups are becoming excluded and what mechanisms of surveillance and control are being used to do that. And for me, that's a really important way to reframe these <laughs> conversations. It's not about, yeah. oh, we're British, so we love our NHS. No, like it's not about that. It's about like who's who's getting to access this, who's not, what kinds of regimes of control is that dependent upon and how can we connect that to other struggles elsewhere? And then what does that mean in terms of a global some kind of global resistance right honestly i knew i told you i told you catherine was real i, f- I told you oh, see catherine's a real one me and tina just sat here like, i was like, I was like right, right. Right. it's a lot it's a lot one of the things that's coming into my head and i think we spoke um this takes me back to an episode we did with john narayan about the shifting category of whiteness and who belongs and who doesn't belong within britain things that i think is really good about what you're suggesting Catherine, is is it's making us question 
who has access to this, what is happening, who's being excluded. One of the good points that John made was the category of who belongs in Britain is like musical chairs. If you think you are safe from the state, then the chances are you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm. And some of the people that are probably most privileged within our lives, I think, fall into this category Mm -hmm. as well. Obviously, there are those of us that are much more precarious than others, but no one is safe. So this should be an issue that everyone's thinking about. I think what's going to be quite interesting is how people... I think there's going to be a shift in the public, actually, because I think more people encounter the state, right? Yeah. So with the kind of mass employments Mm -hmm. that are coming up... Unemployment. Sorry, unemployment are coming up. So, (laughs) so yeah, so you're going to see lots of middle-class people who don't really have anything to do with universal credit see firsthand what the Mm. state's going to be like. Something I've learned. So, basically, when these charges for NHS care got introduced in, like, the early 1980s, all of their pamphlets and analysis of the group No Pass Laws to Health were arguing that this, we should all be concerned, not just because the black and brown people in our communities are being charged or unable to access healthcare or being threatened with deportation. We should all care because this is the first step to the privatisation of healthcare in Britain. It will not be long till everyone is being asked to show documents and pay in order to access healthcare. And this was one of their central arguments. And that's really important because guess what? It's happening again. People are being charged for their healthcare. And guess what's also happening? We're continually finding out there's conversations about the further privatisation of our healthcare. Mm-hmm. Like, these things are linked. So, like, if we start thinking, oh, no, but that's just them undocumented people who don't deserve to give birth in an NHS hospital. So, what? whatever. I mean, firstly, you're racist if you think that. But secondly, like, you need to care. Because mm. unless you've got some, I don't know, trust funds to start funding your healthcare, I don't know what you're going to do when you get ill. Right. Mm. And more and more of us are getting sick because of how we're having to work. Right. Like I've definitely spoke about it on the podcast before, but maybe about a year ago now. Sorry to drop the C-bomb to our new listeners, but I am going to drop it. So my husband has cancer and has had chemotherapy for the last sort of three years. And the reason why I bring it up is not because of like any sort of violins. Like we don't ever want anyone to feel sorry for us, but more because of how integral my husband's treatment has been in making our family understand the extent of our privilege and for those that don't have the access that we have in terms of thinking about life and death basically Mm. so in terms of our economic and social capital if we didn't have that and didn't live in London and didn't live close to hospitals he would have died Mm. and when you have bad things happen in your family Sometimes it really brings home to you how worse things could be. And in particular, thinking about the lockdown as well and COVID-19, one of the things that we've seen is hospitals having to close and beds having to be basically emptied in order to make space for people with COVID-19. One of the things that I think your work really draws to, Catherine, and why it's so urgent right now is COVID-19 is creating or exacerbating the almost Victorian situation that we have in the UK now. The the link between poverty and death right now Mm. in a global pandemic in the UK is absolutely terrifying. And I cannot begin to say enough how urgently we need to be thinking about healthcare in the UK now. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think I said to you when we walked in, I was like, Catherine, I'm triggered by your work, by your (laughs) recent work. Obviously, it's because I have an intimate relationship with healthcare in the UK, Mm. but more because of how much it speaks to... uh, the issues of life and death right now. Mm. 
and also thinking about the reproduction as well like I know a lot of people that have been pregnant during this time like people that I know that have their citizenship people that I know that have their passports if you don't have that stuff what happens to you now and we know what happens to you because the work the work more and more people are doing work to expose this stuff but it, as you say it's been going on for such a long time our family are very privileged so it's a, it's not a good example of recognizing what's happening in terms of the state and and internal borders but it definitely it exemplified pure difference between who lives and who dies yeah. in the UK now. 100%. Like there, Well, there's been a few cases that have made it into the press of migrants who don't have recourse to public funds who have died of COVID without seeking any hospital treatment. And they've died because they were scared that if they came forward, their partners and themselves would be deported. Mm-hmm. COVID is a life and death situation. I've been reading stuff about how like, oh, people aren't allowed to have appointments for other illnesses cancer treatments being shut down and other things because of this right and i think as well what's really important about that and just another point about covid as well people with chronic illnesses or terminal illnesses are not getting their treatment Mm. that people that don't have citizenship or no recourse to public funds still get cancer and still have chronic illnesses and still have these conditions and because of the increased state surveillance as well that we're seeing post-COVID and because of the lack of care that there is, all the inequalities, the exacerbation is just unbelievable. And one final thing that I'll say on this as well, people don't realise is, and particularly with people that need dialysis, people that need chemotherapy, and these are including people, again, that don't have quote-unquote British citizenship. If you are under a certain age, you are not being prioritised now. So the only reason why my husband was able to carry on with his chemotherapy is because he's a young man. Who lives in whose eyes? Citizenship, age, mm. race, ethnicity, like all these things. But it, it comes down to who is valuable, right? Yes. Who, who's society, who's valuable? Mm-hmm. So again, it's kind of a counterpoint to your experience. Mm. So my aunt passed last year of cancer. So we are using the NHS as it is, right? Mm. I've never seen such a madness in my life. Yeah. At some point, it was like I was in prison. People who are naked, screaming. Mm. It was it's like you would see in prison. Mm. And it comes to the idea of institutional nature of it. It's the same across. And in this environment, people are being, I see basically people who are immigrants and drug addicts. Mm. They're excluded. Yeah. They have to sit outside. And these people, they, I can see that they need help, right? But this is an it's free at the point of service. It's meant to be, right? Mm. But it isn't. And but that, who and, is it free at the point of service for? And that is what yeah, Catherine's this, this work is, madness. is speaking to. Sorry, it's heavy. It's a, it's a heavy one. <laughs> it's, it's a heavy one, guys. It's, it's, yeah, no, yeah. it's good. Could you tell us a bit about the work of organisations like Docs Not Cops? Yeah. So big up Docs Not Cops. Like yeah, they're, big doing, up. they're doing really, really important work. Like, So Docs Not Cops is like a kind of, well, it's an activist group who are organising against healthcare charges and borders within the NHS. And I guess it's kind of like came together, I think, between like the organisation MedAct, migrants organise, as well as like medical practitioners who didn't want to act as border guards at work. And they've been doing really important work, just both like raising awareness of the charges through direct action. So like doing like sort of pickets or like direct actions outside of hospitals, etc. They've also been doing loads of really important research. Like they've got this whole toolkit which everyone listening needs to download and read because it tells everyone, particularly people who are privileged enough to have British citizenship, how they can help refuse internal borders, right? How it's important for them not to be showing their passports, In right? the episode notes, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the toolkit's really important. 
Um, and I think they're currently updating it as well to include even more information. So they've got like, they've done a lot of research. And there's also a lot of people who are members of Docs Not Cops who are practitioners, women hospitals, etc., who are organising within their hospitals, like behind the scenes, doing things that we don't know about, um, trying to get the hospital to refuse to comply with NHS charges. Yeah, so big up everyone who's part of those groups. And I've been, yeah, like chatting to them. So it's really interesting because a lot of them hadn't, like none of them knew that NHS charges existed in the 80s. Like, And that's not because they're all not very smart and clued in. It's literally because this stuff gets buried and then Theresa May announces our hostile environment and everyone's like, oh my God, there's this new thing called the hostile environment. And like, to be honest, I've got a bit of like fatigue. Like people have started using hostile environment almost as an analytic. Mm. Like when actually it's just a word that Theresa May, a right-wing politician said, like we shouldn't be using this as our form of analysis. Like, mm. like I don't know, I've got a bit of fatigue. So everyone sort of had this newness with hostile environment and it kind of worked to erase the history because no one bothered looking for the history because everyone thought it was new. So like, I've been sharing a lot of my archival research with them, which has been really, really sick. Like, they're a really great group of people. What did they say? What were their reactions to some of the stuff that you showed them? They just thought it was sick because the thing is, a lot of the pamphlets <laughs> I found... <laughs> I like it. Go on, go on. Well, because a lot of the pamphlets, information leaflets, like posters, etc., that I found have the exact same messaging that they came up with two years ago, right? But they didn't know it already existed. And it's so important for those of us who are engaged in like social justice struggle to like build on what has become before us, to honour like what's come before us, and to like you know take that with us in our struggle. So like they just didn't know about it. So I think they were just happy to know. I've like shared a lot of that stuff. Um, they're actually going to include like references to it in the updated toolkit that they're doing, Amazing. which is sick. But, um, you know, the madness is right. So it depends. Again, this is an intergenerational conversation, right? So for me, growing up in the 80s, it wouldn't be new because at the time we're growing up, Margaret Fred is saying we're going to be swamped by migrants. So that's, that's that era. It's so 1981. It's going to be embodied in those neoliberal policies. But I just think there's a whole generation that once you get to Tony Blair, they forget. Mm. But in 1981, we were saying this. That Martin, well, we're not saying mm. the right wing was saying this. Prior to that, you had Enoch Powell saying the mm. same thing. So it's never new. But the intergenerational thing is that we don't pass these stories on. Mm. Or there's a, there's a disconnect. And I think as an older person, people don't... Oh, we're not having that conversation with the younger people. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a gap. Except we've been doing it for three years on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. No, I definitely... And I can definitely be one of these people that falls within the category that you're talking about in terms of my presentism or not necessarily always looking back at what's happened before, I can definitely fall hostage to that. But I think it's more because I didn't really I didn't really understand about how you could connect from the present mm. to the past until I had space to think about it and talk to people and learn from people. And I feel like, and it's definitely done purposely, our education system doesn't set up for us to build on what's yeah. happened in the past. They erase it. They erase it and they romanticise it. And I'm definitely a product of that neoliberalism. And I have been doing my best to unlearn it. And it's really important. Yeah. Have, that's why it's really important to have scholars like yourself and remind us of that. So, yeah, just to be clear, like, I was throwing no shade on anyone who, like, sees the hostile environment as something new because you're right, like, that's what we're educated to do and we also all do that. Like, there's been so many things, like, okay, even my research and all these, like, algorithms and stuff and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so, like, new, like, big data, all this shit. Mm. I was reading pamphlets the other day about activists who were like saying oh we shouldn't be letting the home office get computers because they're going to digitalize the suspect index and then data share it with the police and i was like oh so none of this is new right so we all do this right and like don't paul gilroy said this thing after the tottenham riots he said 
that the elite and like the elders who made it off the back of like being the spokesperson for like anti-racism in like the 70s and 80s they often like privatized the struggle like the privatization neoliberal logics like got into their heads and so they became like diversity speakers and went to do like talks at the army and the police and crap which like instead of continuing to like pass on these like struggles of like how do we organize a defense campaign for these youth who are getting harassed right so and i think it's really important to remember that like we're all susceptible like that's not a diss to those people either yeah, i'm yeah. sure like no you know having read paul Gilroy's stuff like he's not dissing anyone but mm. like we all inhabit these like violent logics so mm. you know no one's perfect yeah teens <laughs> i can see it teens like i think teens a bit in awe Keep talking, keep talking. Keep talking. Catherine, can you just keep talking? talking to us? Well, actually, one thing I was going to say when you were saying about us not remembering the struggles or not connecting things between the past and the present, and I know we said we weren't going to talk about it, but that was actually why I wrote that Foucault paper, because I was pissed off, right? Like, I was so pissed off. Like, when I was, like, I went through just like British state school so I didn't learn anything about colonialism or empire like mm-hmm. I learned whatever anyone else here learned like nothing basically mm-hmm. and I also like yeah no one was really telling me that stuff but my dad had a coffee shop yeah with his mate and my dad's from Tunisia and his mate was Algerian and they had this like North African coffee shop and from when I was really young I had to work in the coffee shop every weekend and school holidays and I used to think it was long but looking back it's actually the only place people used to talk to me about like the Algerian war for independence or like various struggles in France, like things that like things that I should know about, right? So then when I went uni and I was like, oh, you know, like who the fuck's Foucault? Like Derry Da, like I don't know like what this is. Like I'd never heard of it before. I felt so stupid, but I also thought it was quite interesting. But I kept thinking to myself, I don't understand. Like they was all writing in Paris during the same time that like the French were like massacring like a million Algerian people, mm-hmm. and they just didn't say anything. Like wh- why? Like this is really weird. Like oh, and then honestly, we didn't have any of these like decolonize the university. Why is my curriculum white? Whatever. Like ten years ago, so I just thought I didn't have any like learning circle to like mm-hmm. I don't know learn this mm-hmm. stuff. So I just thought oh. It just must not be important. Fast forward a few years, I'm like trying to read some Foucault interview and he starts saying how all of his ideas on power came from Tunisia. And I was like, what? I am pissed because no one told me. And I would have understood, like I would have understood these ideas so much better if someone had actually just been honest about like, where did they come from? What is this genealogy of knowledge? And actually we should decenter Foucault from Foucault because it was never about Foucault. It was about all these revolutionaries like on the African continent who were doing all this like sick, activism right Mm. so like i I do think that this like struggling to connect like the past and the present and like also just evacuating things out of the context that they come from is something that we're trained almost to do as academics like and it's something that we all have to like work to unlearn basically i think the problem is something like the nhs is it becomes uh decontextualized it becomes an abstraction right so it's the ideals that people are talking about and everyone thinks the ideal is a universal thing so these are basically basically are positive things right I, but i think t interestingly i think you can apply the same logics to how some academics talk about foucault yeah I just think, and i feel yeah. like and i hope you don't mind me saying this Catherine. Catherine got some critiques from her writings about who done that who done that I'm correct in saying that aren't I Catherine yeah honestly like some of the shit that people you know and like the amount of emails I still get from like white male social theorists being like well actually like 
I didn't ask you. I don't know you. Like, what made you think? Like, one time a guy emailed me saying, I did not read your article. I just read the abstract. But here was like 10 paragraphs of my thoughts. Seriously? So that's big. Because you know what, so see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, connecting yeah, yeah. the way they, the way Foucault is romanticised in the academy and the way the NHS is romanticised yeah. in Britain, it becomes this emblem of... Because it must be put on a pedestal, right? So it becomes almost untouchable, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's, you could, so you can't critique it, you can't say anything about it. Like, so Foucault, most people don't even understand Foucault, or Derrida, definitely not Derrida, No, listen, right? I don't even... Like, listen, <laughs> I don't even... I understand Foucault, well, I think, right. a couple of years ago when I read Catherine's paper, <laughs> literally. But, um, but, but this is the thing, so like the NHS, these things are seen as good in themselves, mm. right? And so if you do say anything again, in this current environment, you're unpatriotic if you criticise the mm. NHS. And if you connect it to people from the global south, oh, oh my it's goodness. over. <laughs> it's over. What? The NHS, the NHS was built by people from the Caribbean? Yeah. No. No, the NHS was built by strong <laughs> white men. Yeah. Right. And, and similar with Foucault, like the best people that have spoken about Foucault are a particular type of academic. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the white, yeah. God, I can't believe we've been able to connect Foucault with the NHS. <laughs> no, I think it's also just like we should never like one of my mottos like don't put anyone on a pedestal. Like mm-hmm. I don't care if they're like your partner, your favourite revolutionary, whether it's an institution that you want to work in or study at. Like don't put things on a pedestal because you put them outside of history. Put in someone on you just put them outside of history and then they'll be on critique, right? People are complicated. Catherine, like, that you're like entering my conscious because that is something that I do all the time. I know I do it and I have to always check myself on it. But no, so that's a very human thing to do, right? Your first role model is your, well, in most contexts, your parents, right? You put someone, they, assume, they seem superhuman, yeah. right? And it's when you when they become human, that's when you think, shit, my mum does she does bad things. Yeah. And but that's upsetting for you in, yeah. as a as a child, right? To understand we're all human. And especially as scholars with with heritage that spans the empire, when you haven't seen yourself or seen people that have been put on a pedestal that are come from a similar background to you, it just may, it it becomes so easy to to do that. But actually, like as Catherine said, you need to keep critiquing. And- we kind of binarize people, don't we? Mm. So we have our, our heroes and we have our villains, right? That level of complexity. Once you put make people humans, like for example, Gandhi. Gandhi's no, listen, one. Gandhi. I've been very learning good. about Gandhi, very, guys. Very I've been learning. Man. I've Get been learning off his pedestal. <laughs> I've been learning about Gandhi. What did he do in Ghana? Yeah, like, that's, that's my people. Like, um, no, we shouldn't laugh, but still. Yeah. But I think the same things, and this is what I feel. Why I feel like I was so taken aback and inspired by your recent writings, Catherine. Is the same things apply to the NHS? Our peers, our friends, probably even our colleagues. They talk about the NHS in a binarised way, even when they're complaining about it. So we can have a critical understanding about what the NHS is. We can also talk about the positive things about the NHS mm. and how it's a, a hallmark of, of socialism. And, in, in, and that means that it should be something which we strive for. Possible hallmark of socialism, but that socialism does not come without the extraction from the global south, from the, extra- mm-hmm. the extraction of empire. Also, when people are complaining about the NHS, which is something which we've definitely seen post-coalition, so as we see more cuts and we see the government peddling um, notions of like health tourism and people scrounging, why there's queues and why our hospitals are overrun, people then start to binarise their view of the NHS being like, NHS is finished, it's finished, it's yeah. finished. So it's like we're constantly walking this tightrope of like love the N- I love the NHS as you say and the NHS is finished and actually like 
both ways of looking at it are really problematic. Yeah. Uh, two things. Firstly, I think when our colleagues, like when we have colleagues or people we know, like particularly colleagues because they're supposed to read, sometimes people show themselves up because like, I feel like if you're going to romanticise the NHS and say like, oh, it's this beautiful symbol, rah, 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 then you haven't bothered reading like The Heart of Race. Many like canonical or well-known mm-hmm. texts you haven't bothered reading. Mm-hmm. So really you're just showing your ass. Mm-hmm. But like the second thing I would say about how it becomes entwines with this like oh the NHS is over because of the cuts I think that we need to understand the hostile environment policies or anti-immigrant sentiment is so deeply embedded in like austerity right so the whole logic behind introducing these charges was to stop health tourism because everyone was like well you're cut you're making cuts to the NHS but you're letting all these foreigners come over and mm-hmm. you know have treatment for their kidneys and that's just simply not fair like and this whole fairness narrative comes into play and actually like the whole introduction of charges was a way to raise revenue for the NHS amidst austerity or like that's how these things get justified so I really think it's important also to remember that in our fights against austerity. When we study things we extend, we section them off so we don't really link the NHS to the global south or we don't look at the NHS to castle systems or how it's all they all kind of interlink mm. or the home office it almost seems like it's planned but it's not planned in the sense that someone can sit in the group like like we're sitting here I think it's quite easy how you link these systems and how they feed off of each other basically the NHS the border in it, the internal border of the NHS feeds that prison system because mm. these people can't pay they pay their debts so once you if you if you explain people like that maybe it would change people's attitudes but mm. I, I don't know because I read your work I think how do I explain this in a common sense way to the average person yeah something that shocked me that I found when I just started doing this research was so when people have their debts after two months if they haven't paid their debt the debt gets passed on to like debt collection agencies and they in the home office get notified that these people have outstanding debts of like over a grand or something but you've got to remember just a normal like if you give birth like that's about six grand so like things are costly because it's charged 150% of the cost right so then I was interested in like who's recuperating this debt like who are these bailiffs like who are these debt collectors so I went on this like company's house like search I was looking at all these like trying to find all these government contracts blah, blah, blah. I find this company they're like registered to like a cottage in Wales or I don't know where they're off you know what I mean they're not like properly registered right, but they hold the large majority of NHS trusts debt collection contracts and one of the reasons most LHS trusts went with them is because they boast that they have debt collection offices in over like 60 countries or something, which means that even in the event that someone is deported, they will still come for the NHS debt, right? Like, So like, how can you be sitting there being like, oh, the beautiful NHS, you know what I mean? Like, the, like, don't get me wrong as well. Like, just like disclaimer, like, got a lot of love for the NHS I like like I have spent the last few years having heavy like dealings with the NHS through like family members illness like, I really like it's not I'm not saying fuck the NHS but I'm also saying that let's take our blinders off do you know what I mean let's organize against what is happening to the wretched of our population like the people who are destitute the people who are on the underbelly of access like it's such an urgent call for critical thinking and taking up take the blinders off as, as you say because covid19 means people are scared they're not just scared of the illness they're scared of the state they're scared of deportation there's like more than ever like they've always been but this is really really exacerbating it like but yeah and, and but what's the what, what makes me sad is when at the start of the pandemic you could see that concern and that kind of that will was there to kind of help everyone mm-hmm. but like we said at the start of that pandemic this is quickly evaporated everyone's come back to individualism mm-hmm. it's come down to who deserving and who's not undeserving of to use these services and you can see that on public transport you can see mm-hmm. it in most even down to shopping mm-hmm. now if you, most places don't take cash anymore 
if you're lucky enough to have a card and a bank account, you can use it. But mm-hmm. cash, no more. Yeah. That is, yeah, I know we've talked about that a lot too, but it's, but it's really good you keep reminding me of that because like, I just take for granted the use of a debit card like mm. massively. Fully <laughs> take it for granted. And mm. I feel like I'm sort of out of breath and out of words because it just all feels so urgent and you just kind of feel, yeah, a little bit helpless. And I guess rolling back to what you said about the toolkit like listeners read it because that is the way yeah. that's just one way one thing that you can do to help another thing is yeah if you're privileged enough to have like a british passport and maybe your partner or you know whoever you're close to does as well and you're not at immediate risk when people ask you for your passport say no mm. ask them why they're asking to see it and just say no chances are like if you're white like no one's going to push you to the point where you're going to be denied access to anything but it's really important that those of us who can refuse these systems do refuse these systems because there are some people who can't. Catherine, honestly, you have blown our minds today. <laughs> Thank you for honestly, having this me. Is going, this is going in my top, this is going in my Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame episode. I was, you know what, most of time I'm speechless. I was like, I just listen to you talk all the yeah, time. Yeah, honestly, she <laughs> sat there like, she just sat there smiling like, I just, I just want to listen to Catherine. Yeah, just listen, it's sick, man. Yeah, it's, it really is. Good. Really it's, good. it's amazing. You're Thank such you a brilliant, you're such an inspiring scholar. And if you don't know Catherine, get to know. She's at the Open University now. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us. We will be back next week, of course. Patrons, another episode for you now over on our Patreon. Thank you so much for all your support and see you guys. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.